Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. Book 3, Chapter 2, Cruising Along. Now, I have run out of Bogan translations. I'm very disappointed in that. I'm very disappointed in myself. I really thought I'd be able to keep up one per day. And it seems that I've been averaging about one every three days. Um, And... I'm putting in the hours, it's just a slow process, and I don't know, I think my mind is a bit scattered from other things, so I'm just struggling. So my apologies, I haven't kept up, but I say I've run out, but I haven't quite. I've got half a chapter, I've got half of today's chapter. So we'll try this today, we'll start the chapter reading with my version, and halfway through it, I'm going to switch from that when I run out of words, I'm going to switch back to Maud, and I'll complete the chapter with Maud. And that'll be interesting because for some people, they won't be, they don't uh, read Maud, or they don't read any other version. They're just listening along to the podcast. Um, it'll be interesting for those people to be able to see indirect comparison, the contrast between my version and the Maud version, and just see how different they are. Um. And then proceeding, what should I do going forward? So I could see how far I get through each chapter every day and do the same thing every day. So some days I'll finish a chapter per day. Other days I won't be able to get through a chapter per day. But do I just leave every day's chapter where I finish it and then later in the future go back and finish those chapters? Is that the way to go? Or... You see, the problem with that, though, is oh, I guess I guess that must be the way to go. So I was going to say, because then at least I'm still working my way through the book. The other idea I had was to skip forward um, a f- like a month or so and start working on, say, like if I just started working on book four right now and then by the... And, for the daily readings in the meantime just did Maud for like the rest of book three and then when we get to book four hopefully I'll have that book ready to go that was the other option but I think I think this option's better just every day I see how I go I'll try to get a chapter done but I might not get a full chapter done um so we most days hopefully we'll be reading just my version other days we'll have to be splicing them together I think that, you know why I think that's the way to go is because that means that I can still be releasing books, you know, book two, book three, book four, as I finish them. Whereas if I'm skipping forward, then I'll be completing books out of order chronologically. Um, So then, you know, if I finish book four, I won't actually be able to release it as an ebook or or a paperback because I won't have book three in place. Does that make sense? So I think that's what I'll do. All right, cool. I'm just thinking out loud. Guys, I think I've made my decision, but... I'm pretty dumb, so let me know if you can see any flaws in that in that decision or in my logic there. Feel free to discuss it in today's conversation. We're also discussing what are your thoughts on the marriage of Pierre and Helena? Are you surprised it happened so quickly? Any predictions about how it will end? Or how it will end up, sorry, I should say. Um, how do you think Helena is feeling about the marriage? Ripster66 says, I don't think prolonged engagements were the norm so the quick wedding wasn't too surprising what got me was the proposal how the proposal went down 
No actual proposal, just a continuation of the assumption everyone was making. I'm getting more and more frustrated with Pierre, who can't seem to make any important decision on his own. Career, dealing with his dying father, and now marriage have all been manipulated for him. It's hard to think of him as a victim, as he's never once tried to take control of his life. Even when he tried to take Prince Andre's advice and not go out partying, he still did it because he thought others would be disappointed in him. You know, I think he still did it because, deep down, he just wanted to party. And how old is Pierre here? He's a young man, right? Like he's 20 or so. Um, so, you know, you kind of... I didn't know what the hell I wanted to be then. And if things were just moving, like his things are changing in his life at a bloody monumental... Uh, uh, size what <laughs> a degree is what I'm trying to say like he's becoming he's going from not knowing what he wants to do to his life to still not knowing but also being like the richest guy in the country um, you know and now he's married apparently and he doesn't know what he wants and all these huge things are happening I wouldn't you know if that was me I would just want to go and party <laughs> I think um, but yeah, I do, it is so frustrating the way that he just won't act, you know, he just lets, he lets others sort of push him to where he, wherever they want him to go. Um, Ripster66 also said, it's yet to be seen if Helena has any thoughts of her own at all. She seems happy enough with Pierre and it's what is expected of her, but she hasn't voiced her own thoughts on anything yet. Is she stupid as Pierre suspects or conniving to get what she wants? hope there's more depth to her than we've seen so far you know i think we see you know i think this is easy to read right over but there's a bit in the chapter which is you can read right past it without really thinking about it because tolstoy doesn't really tell you how to interpret it but the moment that they were engaged right the first thing she says to him as newlyweds is take those glasses off. Like she's already just like, oh, I hate those specs, essentially. I don't think she's saying I hate them, but she's just already sort of like trying to change him, even in that little tiny way of telling him to take the specs off. But like he needs them to see. And she's just like, I don't like those on your face. Get them off. And he's like, okay. <laughs> And um, we don't know much about her character yet, but I think that little moment is actually, if you, you know, having read the book before, that little moment, I didn't notice, I didn't notice it the first time I read, but I definitely noticed it this time. Um, Amy Lay says, I'm liking Pierre less and less. He's so frustrating. I can't believe he didn't speak up once. I did speak up once. I also can't believe he's so trusting. Wasn't he supposed to be intelligent? I think Pierre is book smart, says Ripster66, and eager to discuss philosophy and politics, but not street smart as it comes to manoeuvring in society. He's very naive and way too trusting. I think it doesn't help that he was raised away from this society's scheming and barely knew his father. I hope he doesn't pay too high a price for his naivety. Guanardo says, my favourite line from the Briggs translation, he had... He made an attempt to bend down and kiss her hand, but after one 
quick, rough toss of her head, she found his lips and brought them to her own. Pierre was struck by the new, unpleasantly distorted expression on her face. Yikes, nothing says love like unpleasantly distorted expression, and I believe this is supposed to be their first kiss. Yeah, I mean, before any of this, I don't think anyone was really shipping them together, were we? And um, right from the start, you're just kind of unsettled by the whole ordeal. Who is Helena? Let her speak, says the Karishi. I don't know anything about her besides her father and a few lines from the beginning. Not the most developed character so far. And she has a superb bosom, says Big Blue Banana. That's apparently all you and Pierre need to know. Um, Yeah, a little bit. I think... um, it's not really a case of the whole like uh, men writing women thing. I think the thing they're trying to portray with Helena in particular is um, <laughs> is that she herself kind of doesn't say anything, and all she does is just rely on smiling in in society because she's good looking and privileged and dumb according to Pierre so she just sort of smiles and you know wears her top low and waves her boobs in front of people and it's not shallowness you know she is shallow but I don't think it's the author being shallow I think he's just trying to portray um, a spoiled brat of a young lady Um, and that's a massive flaw but here's the thing about War and Peace and I think Tolstoy books he will have every character will have their flaws, and a lot of them are quite shallow. Um, but it's not. I don't think it's a case of, you know, um, that like the women are the weak characters in the book. I think there are weak characters in this book, and some of them are women, and some of them are men. I mean, look at Pierre. He's not being portrayed in a good light here at all. Although we are getting a lot more depth of character with Pierre. We're getting in his head, and we're hearing him speak. Not so much with Helena, but I think I think what this is in this case is that Pierre, that's Pierre's experience of Helena, you know. He can't get in her head. She won't say anything. All she does is sit there and smile and, you know, have boobs. <laughs> and, you know, he's a young hormonal man, so I guess he's kind of under that spell. Um, I, um, yeah, I think that's it. It's really hard to portray shallow characters like without seeming like a shallow author. You know, some characters are just meh. Some people are just meh. Uh, Warren Kovofi says, I remember back during the chapter where Anna Mikhailovna is escorting Pierre to his dying father. The theme of determinism in the novel. I can kind of see that now considering that Pierre so easily allows himself to be wed to Helena. Similar to how Anna more or less guides Pierre through the ins and outs with the death of his father, Prince Vasily does the same in guiding him to marrying his daughter. I know things were different then, but I'm just kind of in awe of how quickly this marriage happened. I think Pierre finds Helena to be beautiful, but that's about it. My money is on their relationship not lasting, given Pierre's reservation and how quickly it all happened. Like others have mentioned, we don't really have a lot to go off when it comes to Helena, so I'm not too sure what to think of her feelings of the marriage. 
She seemed more or less to be waiting for Pierre to propose to her this whole time, so I think she's on the same page with the rest of her family and had Pierre in her sights as soon as Bezukhov's fortune became his. Um, oh, Alright, I think I'm going to... I'm going to read one more comment, then I'm going to read the chapter. Bickering Cube says, This has been the most frustrating chapter in the book so far. Pierre is a bit of an idiot. Oh yeah, big time. I would imagine Helena feels pretty good about the marriage, all things considered. She was never going to marry for love, right? That's not what princesses do. So she lucked out. Pierre is not going to abuse her, and he's rich. So congrats to Helena. Alright. Congrats to Helena. Let's read chapter 3. Goes like this. Old man Bolkonsky received a letter from Prince Vasily in November 1805, announcing that him and his son should be paying him, would be paying him a visit. I'm heading out past your neck of the woods on a journey of inspection, and the extra 70 miles to swing past yours isn't too far out of my way, my honoured benefactor, wrote Prince Vasily. My son Anatole is coming with me on his way to the army. He's just like his old man, in that he'll want to show you the deep respect he has for you. I hope you don't mind. Looks like we don't need to take Mary out. The suitors are coming to us, little Princess Lisa blabbed on hearing the news. Old Prince Nikolai Andreich Bolkonsky cringed and said nothing. A fortnight after the letter came, Prince Vasily's servants arrived. Then the next day after that, Prince Vasily and his son arrived. Old man Bolkonsky had always considered Prince Vasily to be a bit of a wanker, but even more so recently, since the new leadership of Paul and Alexander had raised Vasily's rank and honours. And now, from the hints in the letter and the reaction of the little princess, he had cottoned on to what Prince Vasily was up to and had updated his opinion of him from wanker to absolute fuckwit. On the day of Prince Vasily's arrival, old man Bolkonsky was in a particularly putrid mood. It was unclear whether he was in a bad mood because Vasily was coming or if being in a bad mood already just made him pissed off at Vasily's arrival. Either way, he was properly fucked off that day, so much so that Tikhon had told the architect that morning not to go in to see the prince with his report. Hear that? Hear, the f- hear his footsteps? said Tikhon. Tikhon. Gesturing to the architect in the direction of the prince's footsteps. He's stepping onto the back of his foot. You know what that means. However, at nine o'clock, the prince, in his velvet coat with a sable collar and cap, went out for his daily walk as usual. It had snowed the day before, and the path to the hothouse, which was where the prince liked to walk, had been swept. You could still see the broom sweeps in the snow, and a shovel had been left pitched into the soft snowbank that bordered the path. The prince went through the conservatory, the star... The serfs, oops, I've spelled that wrong, one moment. The prince went through the conservatory, the serfs' quarters, and the outbuildings, frowning and silent. But you couldn't get a sleigh through here, could you? He asked his steward, who was accompanying him back to the house. The steward was a respectable man and looked a bit like his master. It's pretty deep snow. I'm having the avenue swept, your honour. The prince bowed his head and went up to the porch. Thank God that for that thought the steward. The storm seems to have passed. It would have been hard to drive up, Your Honour, he added, putting his foot in it. 
I heard, Your Honour, that a minister is coming to visit you, Your Honour. The prince turned around to the steward and gave him a big frown. What the... A minister? What minister? Says who? He said in a very harsh and pissed off voice. So what? You won't sweep the road for my daughter, a princess, but you will for a minister. There are no damn ministers to me. Your Honour, I just assumed... You assumed, shouted the prince he was speaking more and more angrily. You assumed, dickheads, bloody crooks. I'll teach you to assume. And he lifted his stick and took a full swing at Alpatich, at Alpatich, the steward, and it would have got him too if he hadn't instinctively ducked. Assumed, you bloody crooks, shouted the prince rapidly. But although Alpatich, shitting himself as he was at his own boldness in ducking the blow, came up to the prince with his head lowered obediently, or possibly because of that very reason, old man Bolkonsky didn't take another swing. Instead, he hurried off into the house, shouting, Bloody crooks! Throw the snow back on the fucking road now! Before dinner, Princess Mary and Mademoiselle Boreen, who... Oops, spell wrong. Who knew that the prince was in a shitty mood, stood waiting for him. Mademoiselle Boreen... Why are these all spelt wrong? I spelt them all... Okay. Oh, gosh. Mademoiselle Boreen, with a chirpy demeanour that said, I know nothing, I'm the same as usual, and Princess Mary, looking pale and scared, with her eyes to the floor. The worst thing about days like this for Mary was that she knew she should follow Mademoiselle Boreen's lead, but she couldn't stand to. She thought, if I act like I haven't noticed, he'll think I don't care, but if I seem sad and out of sorts myself, He'll say, as he always does, that I'm down in the dumps. The prince looked at his daughter's frightened face and snorted. Idiot. Bloody Drongo, he muttered. And the other one isn't here. They've been talking shit, he thought, referring to the little princess who wasn't there in the dining room. Where's the little princess? he asked. Hiding? She's not feeling well, answered Mademoiselle Boreen with a chirpy smile. So she's not coming down. That's normal for someone in her state. Hmm, hmm, muttered the prince, sitting down. His plate didn't look clean to him. He pointed to a spot, then piffed it over his shoulder. Tikon caught it and handed it to a footman. The little princess wasn't really feeling sick, she was just feeling overwhelmingly shit-scared of the prince after hearing he was in a shitty mood, and so decided not to go down. I'm scared for the baby, she said to Mademoiselle Boreen. Who knows what harm a fright might do? The little princess lived in fear basically all the time at Bald Hills, and she really didn't like the prince, although she hadn't acknowledged that feeling. She'd been too busy feeling scared. The prince wasn't all that fond of her either, but his feeling was more one of straight-up contempt for her. When the little princess had gotten used to life at Bald Hills, she took a real liking to Mademoiselle Boreen, spending whole days with her, asking to sleep in her room, and often venting and ranting about the old prince with her. So we're having visitors, Mon Prince, asked Mademoiselle Boreen, unfolding her napkin with her pink fingers. His Excellency Prince Vasily Karagin and his son, am I right? She inquired. Mm, Excellency, more like little shithead. I got him his gig in the service, said the prince disdainfully. Why is he bringing his son? I don't understand. Maybe Princess Lisa or Princess Mary might be able to fill me in. I've got no use for him. He looked at his daughter, who was blushing. What, are you sick, huh? 
scared of the minister, as that idiot Alpatiche called him this morning. No, mon Paris. Even though Mademoiselle Boreen had done a shithouse job of choosing the subject of conversation, she persevered, chatting lightly about the conservatory, and then about a particularly beautiful flower she'd seen blossom, and after the soup had come out, the prince started to relax a little. After dinner, he went to see his daughter-in-law, the little princess, was sitting at a small table, chatting with Marsha, her maid. She went white as a ghost when her father-in-law walked in. She looked different these days. She was plain now, rather than pretty. Her cheeks had sunk, her lip was drawn up, and her eyes drawn down. The prince asked how she felt. Yeah, I'm feeling a little oppressed, she replied. Do you want anything? No, merci, mon père. Good, all right, all right. He left the room and went to the waiting room where Alpatiche was standing like a sucking dog. Did you put the snow back on the road? Yes, Your Excellency. Please forgive me for heaven's sake. I can't help it. I'm just so stupid. All right, all right, interrupted the prince. And laughing his weird-ass laugh, he stretched out his hand for Alpatiche to kiss and then kept moving to his study. All right, we're switching. We're switching. Kept moving to his study. Uh, all right. One moment, please. Prince Vasily arrived that evening. He was met in the avenue by coachmen and footmen who, with loud shouts, dragged his sleighs up to one of the lodges over the road purposely laden with snow. Prince Vasily and Anatoly had separate rooms assigned to them. Anatoly, having taken off his overcoat, sat with arms akimbo before a table on a corner of which he smilingly and absent-mindedly fixed his large and handsome eyes. He regarded his whole life as a continual round of amusement which... Someone, for some reason, had to provide for him. And he looked on this visit to a churlish old man and a rich and ugly heiress in the same way. All this might, he thought, turn out very well and amusingly. And why not marry her if she really has so much money? That never does any harm, thought Anatole. He shaved and scented himself with the care and elegance which had become habitual to him, and his handsome head held high, entered his father's room with the good-humoured and victorious air natural to him. Prince Vasily's two valets were busy dressing him, and he looked around with much animation and cheerfully nodded to his son as the latter entered, as if to say, yes, that's how I want you to look. I say, father, joking apart, is she very hideous? Anatole asked, as if continuing a conversation, the subject of which had often been mentioned during the journey. Enough, what nonsense, above all, try to be respectful and cautious with the old prince. If he starts a row, I'll go away, said Prince Anatole. I can't bear those old men, ugh. Remember, for you, everything depends on this. In the meantime, not only was it known in the maidservant's room that the minister and his son had arrived, but the appearance of both had been minutely described. Princess Mary was sitting alone in her room, vainly trying to master her agitation. Why didn't they write? Why did Lisa tell me about it? It can never happen, she said, looking at herself in the glass. How shall I enter the drawing room? Even if I like him, I can't now be myself with him. The mere thought of her father's look filled her with terror. The little princess and Mademoiselle Boreen had already received from Masha 
the lady's maid, the necessary report of how handsome the minister's son was, with his rosy cheeks and dark eyebrows, and with what difficulty the father had dragged his legs upstairs while the son had followed him like an eagle, three steps at a time. Having received this information, the little princess and Mademoiselle Boreen, whose chattering voices had reached her from the corridor, went into Princess Mary's room. "'You know they've come, Marie,' said the little princess, waddling in and sinking heavily into an armchair. She was no longer in the loose gown she generally wore in the morning, but had on one of her best dresses. Her hair was carefully done and her face was animated, which, however, did not conceal its sunken and faded outlines. Dressed as she used to be in Petersburg society, it was still more noticeable how much plainer she had become. Some unobtrusive touch had been added to Mademoiselle Boring's toilet, which rendered her fresh and pretty face yet more attractive. "'What? Are you going to remain as you are, dear princess?' she began. "'They'll be announcing that the gentlemen are in the drawing-room, and we shall have to go down, and you have not smartened yourself up at all.' The little princess got up, rang for the maid, and hurriedly and merrily began to devise and carry out a plan of how Princess Mary should be dressed. Princess Mary's self-esteem was wounded by the fact that the arrival of a suitor agitated her, and still more so by, by both her companions not having the least conception that it could be otherwise. To tell them that she felt ashamed for herself and for them would be to betray her agitation, while to decline their offers to dress her would prolong their banter and insistence. She flushed, her beautiful eyes drew, grew dim, red blotches came on her face, and it took on the unattractive, martyr-like expression it so often wore as she submitted herself to Mademoiselle Boreen and Lisa. Both these women quite sincerely tried to make her look pretty. She was so plain that neither of them could think of her as a rival, so they began dressing her with perfect sincerity, and with the naive and firm conviction women have that dress can make a face pretty. "'No, really, my dear, this dress is not pretty,' said Lisa, looking sideways at Princess Mary for a little distance, from a little distance. You have a maroon dress. Have it fetched, really. You know the fate of your whole life may be at stake, but this one is too light. It's not becoming. It was not the dress, but the face and the whole figure of Princess Mary that was not pretty. But neither Mademoiselle Boreen nor the little princess felt this. They still thought that if a blue ribbon were placed in the hair, the hair combed up, and the blue scarf arranged lower on the best maroon dress, and so on, all would be well. They forgot that the frightened face and the figure could not be altered and that however they might change the setting and adornment of that face what of that face it would still remain piteous and plain after two or three changes to which princess mary meekly submitted just as her hair had been arranged on the top of her head a style that quite altered and spoiled her looks and she had put on a maroon dress with a pale blue scarf the little princesses walked twice around her now adjusting a fold of the dress with her little hand, now arranging the scarf and looking at her head bent first on one side and then on the other. No, it will not do, she said decidedly, clasping her hands. No, Mary, really, this dress does not suit you. I prefer you in your little grey everyday dress. Now please do it for my sake. Katie, she said to the maid, bring the princess her grey dress, and you'll see, Mademoiselle Boreen, how I shall arrange it, she added, smiling with a foretaste of artistic pleasure. But when Katie brought the required dress, Princess Mary remained sitting motionless, motionless before the glass, looking at her face, and saw in the mirror her eyes full of tears and her mouth quivering, ready to burst into sobs. "'Come, dear Princess,' said Mademoiselle Boreen, "'just one more little effort.' 
The little princess taking the dress from the maid came up to Princess Mary. Well, now we'll arrange something quite simple and becoming, she said. The three voices, hers, Mademoiselle Boreen's and Katie's, who was laughing at something, mingled in a merry sound like the chirping of birds. No, leave me alone, said Princess Mary. Her voice sounded so serious and so sad that the chirping of the birds was silenced at once. They looked at the beautiful, large, thoughtful eyes full of tears and of thoughts, gazing shiningly and imploring at them, and understood that it was useless and even cruel to insist. At least change your coiffure, said the little princess. Didn't I tell you, she went on, turning reproachfully to Mademoiselle Boreen, Mary's face, Mary's is a face which such a coiffure does not suit in the least. Not in the least. Please change it. Leave me alone. Please leave me alone. It's all the quite the same to me, answered a voice struggling with tears. Mademoiselle Boreen and the little princess had to own to themselves that Princess Mary, in this guise, looked very plain, worse than usual, but it was too late. She was looking at them with an expression they both knew, an expression thoughtful and sad. This expression in Princess Mary did not frighten them. She never inspired fear in everyone, but in anyone, but they knew that when it appeared on her face she became mute and was not to be shaken in her determination. "'You will change it, won't you?' said Lisa. And as Princess Mary gave no answer, she left the room. Princess Mary was left alone. She did not comply with Lisa's request. She not only left her hair as it was, but did not even look in her glass. Letting her arms fall helplessly, she sat with downcast eyes and pondered. A husband, a man, a strong, dominant, and strangely attractive being rose in her imagination and carried her into a totally different, happy world of his own. She fancied a child, her own, such as she had seen the day before in the arms of her nurse's daughter at her own breast, the husband standing by and gazing tenderly at her and the child. But no, it's not possible. I'm too ugly, she thought. Please come to tea. The prince will be out in a moment, came the maid's voice at the door. She roused herself and felt appalled at what she had been thinking, and before going down she went into the, into the room where the icons hung and her eyes fixed on the dark face of a large icon of the saviour lit by a lamp she stood before it with folded hands for a few moments a painful doubt filled her soul could the joy of love of earthly love for a man be for her in her thoughts of marriage princess mary dreamed of happiness and of children but her strongest most deeply hidden longing was for earthly love the more she tried to hide this feeling from others and even from herself the stronger it grew Oh God, she said, how am I to stifle in my heart those temptations of the devil? How am I to renounce forever these vile fancies so as peacefully to fulfill thy will? And scarcely had she put that question than God gave her the answer in her own heart. Desire nothing for thyself, seek nothing, be not anxious or envious. Man's future and thy own fate must remain hidden from thee, but live so that thou mayest be ready for anything. If it be God's will to prove thee in the duties of marriage, be ready to fulfil his will. With this consoling thought, but yet with a hope for the fulfilment of her forbidden earthly longing, Princess Mary sighed, and having crossed herself, went down, thinking neither of her gown and coiffer, nor of how she would go in, nor of what she would say. What could all that matter in comparison with the will of God? without whose care not a hair of man's head can fall. All right, there we go. There's a chapter. A bit of a mix, mish, mish, mishmatch of mish, mishmatch, mish, 
What am I trying to say? I don't know. I think I'm having a stroke. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.